You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Man, it's good to see you guys here. Thirst service is awesome, and uh, it's good to see uh, a lot more people in this service. We want this service to grow, and um, one of the ways that we want to uh, just kind of hang and, and um, spend some time with you guys is next Sunday, right after this service. So next Sunday, uh, the 19th, uh, third service cookout. So we've got some folks that are going to cook some food for us, grill out. Um, it's going to be super, super cheap. We just kind of want to help cover the cost with this. So your family eating here is going to be cheaper than anything else in town. Um, and so we would love for you guys just to hang out with us for a little bit and uh, be able to, to eat. Um, meet some new people. Let us hang out with you. Um, and so we're, we're excited about that. Bring somebody next week. Next Sunday is the perfect Sunday to bring somebody who may not be like involved in church anywhere, may not even like have a relationship with God. We're going to talk about a guy by the name of Nicodemus, very popular story in the Bible. That's where we're going to be. And just a great, 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 great opportunity to invite somebody. So I encourage you to um, drag somebody here. I don't know, um, pay them to come, tell them you'll, you know, pay for their meal if they stay after the cookout. Uh, all kinds of ways to bribe people to come to church, and I'm all for that. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, and then uh, also, he mentioned the night of worship. And so the night of worship is more than just come and, and worship and sing. But the night of worship, we're actually recording our first album. So it's a little bit of a big deal for us. And so um, if you have a big mouth and you're loud, then we definitely want you here um, because we need some great um, uh, attendance. And we just want to have a great time just to worship God. But we're going to be able to uh, provide that to the community in, in ways. And so that's going to be a big big help for the church and, and for you guys as well. Um, so we're in John chapter two. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go to John chapter two. And um, as always, want to welcome you guys for being here, people who are listening to the podcast this week. And for those who might be watching online, if you didn't know, we're streaming our services live. So if you're ever out of town, um, you can dial us up and, and still uh, be a part of what's happening here. Uh, actually, somebody in the first service today didn't know about our, our Foothills Church app too. So if you didn't know about our app, make sure you grab the app. A lot of great information there. You can watch the, the sermon uh, video. You can share that. All kinds of great information there as well. So um, that's all the information I've got for you. All right. So my next question is, we get, as we get going, is what are you passionate about? What are you really, truly like energized for, passionate about, and, and like that, that just drives you and wakes you up in the morning? What are you passionate about? It's a good question because um, when you go for an interview, any job you interview you go to, more than likely they're going to ask you a question that revolves around your passion. Like, like, what are you passionate about or what are you excited about? What energizes you? Those are all things that employers want to know about us. So I think it's a good question to, to wrestle with and to ask. Now, some of us struggle with it a little bit more than others because, you know, it's kind of like the word love. We overuse love. You know, we love our wife and we also love Dunkin' Donuts. And so sometimes that is confused. By the way, today's my wife wife's birthday. And so, I mean, it's a special day for us. If you see her in the hallways, um, encourage her. If you don't know her, then that's going to be hard for you to do. But, um, you know, she is, man, without her, Foothills Church would not be what Foothills Church is without her. She is so near and dear to me. And I'm, I'm just glad to celebrate her 21st birthday today. So I'm excited. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> she's, she's not that, but you know what I'm saying. So somebody's like, man, he really robbed the cradle. No, that's, just can't, can't tell the real age, right? So anyway, you know, going back to the sermon, um, we, have, we have these um, discussions about passion and, and sometimes we overuse the word passion and, and we're passionate about, you know, things um, that, you know, are 
minor. Maybe, maybe we're passionate about cars. Uh, we're excited about that. We're, we're passionate about singing, you know. But, you know, just because you love to sing in the shower doesn't mean that your passion is singing, right? So there's a little bit of a difference there. So when you think about passion, you really get down to that, like the core of, of what energizes you, what excites you. When you're trying to figure out what you're passionate about, you can really just kind of follow the trail. The trail of what you're spending your time on, what you're spending your energy on, books that you're reading, things that you're thinking about, places that you're going. All of these things really point to our passion. Um, when you think about passion, sometimes it's easier to see a visual for it. So I, I found this picture this week and, and it helps us kind of see what passion looks like. So this guy is obviously passionate about uh, photography. Um, and so he's so passionate, you know, he's got the lava deal going on. He's I guess, some kind of volcanic deal. His shoes are on fire and his tripod is on fire. That's how hot it is. Now, now, I don't know if this is a real photo or not. Maybe not. But it makes the point that this guy, A, he's a little crazy. That's how passionate he is. And sometimes when you're passionate about stuff, others look at you and they think you're a little crazy and that's okay. He's also persevering through some adversity, which when you think about it, that really helps us know what our uh, passion is as well. Because if we're passionate about something, we will persevere through adversity, won't we? Um, when you think about it, um, if you are passionate about playing the guitar, for instance, you will play that thing and practice that thing, even if your fingertips like split and crack and, and break and some of you played sports and you wrestled and, and, and you got cauliflower ear. You ever seen guys with their ears got all jacked up from wrestling and like they persevere. Some of you played sports and like you're running and you're working out and you're throwing up in the trash can and then you're running back to the field, you know. Overcoming perseverance, um, overcoming adversity and persevering is what usually takes place when we are passionate about something, doesn't it? The other thing that we do when we're passionate is that we don't really care what people think about us. So you overcome really what, the, the, what people look at you as or, or what people might say about you. Um, when you think about when you were passionate about something that might've been a little nerdy, you know? Remember when you started getting into something that was a little nerdy and maybe you didn't tell everybody that you were doing it because you were afraid of what they were thinking about. So when you went out on that first date with her, you didn't tell her about the $5,000 worth of comic books in your closet because that was a little nerdy and kind of a little weird. Uh, so you waited until like year two or three to throw that on her, uh, which is smart by the way. But if you're super passionate about comic books, you don't care who knows and you don't care that it's nerdy. You're passionate about it. You don't, you don't really care. So when Spider-Man movie comes out, you're the guy that's like, well, the Spider-Man movie isn't exactly like the comic book story because, and you're like, everybody's like, bro, you're a dork. So seriously, don't tell. But you don't care, do you? When you're passionate about something, you don't care what people around you really think. So what are you passionate about? What really drives you? What really motivates you? I came across another picture that really, I think, um, encapsulated for me what passion looks like. And it's this picture of an image from the recent uh, film, uh, The Bible. Uh, that obviously, this is Jesus carrying the cross. Now, there are a lot of different images uh, that people have created on the cross and whatnot. But the reason why this one really stirred me is because he's on the way to the hill where they're going to crucify him. Knowing what's going to happen, he's already been beaten. The Bible says beyond recognition. So this doesn't even actually do justice to what he really looked like. He, he, you couldn't even tell who he was when you looked at Jesus after they beat him in the crown of thorns. And here he is carrying 
his cross. Overcoming perseverance. Passionate for the glory of God. Passionate for you and for me. Overcoming adversity. Everything about him is, is, is in this concept of passion and sacrifice for you and I. You see, today in our scripture, we're going to get a glimpse, a little tiny glimpse of what passion looks like in the life of Jesus. Um, in chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 13. We're going to see what gets him um, excited, what, what, what drives him, what's making him um, have, have passion in his life. And so I want you to think through that lens as we go through this. What is your passion and does your passion and response to God match Jesus's passion and response to God. So let's look, verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Let's just talk a minute about the Passover. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal for the Jewish people at this time. Everybody went to Jerusalem that could go to Jerusalem. You were required. It was, it was the law. If you were within 15 miles of the city, you had to go. That was the law. But everybody really wanted to go. There's about 200,000 people in Jerusalem, they, they believe, at that time. And it would like double in size during this season because everybody wanted to celebrate the Passover together in, in the city of Jerusalem. And so uh, remembering, if, if you're kind of new to faith, new to the, uh, the Bible, uh, the Passover is what they celebrated um, in the, uh, based on what happened in the Old Testament. A guy by the name of Moses was, was getting um, the Israelites out of slavery. They were in slavery to the Egyptians and trying to release them from Pharaoh. Um, the, you heard about the 10 plagues. The final plague was when God sent the death angel and it was, the death angel was gonna kill the firstborn son of every family um, in Egypt, except if uh, you by faith sacrifice the lamb and then put the blood of that lamb on your doorpost, then that step of faith the death angel would pass over your house and thereby God's grace shed up upon your family and save your firstborn son. And because of that and, and that experience that they went through, they celebrate the Passover and how God blessed them and saved them and showed his grace to them. And so that's what they're celebrating. And by the way, the sacrificial lamb on the doorpost of the, of the Jewish people at that time was a foreshadowing of the coming sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so we knew that that was taken place. We can see that now. And so that's why the Passover is so special. That's why it's celebrated. And that's why at this during this time, Jesus is going um, to the temple. Now let's continue. Verse 14. It says, now in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So Jesus enters the temple he sees money changers sitting there. He sees people selling animals for the sacrifice. Now what's, what's going on here? Well, if you were coming to make a sacrifice, you had to have a perfect sacrifice, uh, sacrificial animal. It had to pass, uh, pass inspections by the priest. And if it didn't pass the inspection, you know, what, what were you going to do? And so most people at this time, they, especially if you live, you know, a distance away, 10, 15 miles away, you weren't going to lug your big ox, you know, through the trail, you know, down the trail to Jerusalem or your, your animals. You were going to go to the temple and you were just going to buy one. And then you were going to, you know, be able to have your act of worship and, and sacrifice there. But here's what would happen if you did bring your own animal. And so if you brought your own animal, it would have to pass the inspection. And what was taking place here, and this is part of what was upsetting Jesus, is that the priest would look at this and, and say, yeah, you know what? Not quite perfect. 
However, I have the perfect lamb over here and for e- three easy payments of $19.99. You can have that lamb, right? And so, you know, not quite like that, but you get the picture. They were basically, um, they, were, they were extorting the people. And so they, were, they, were, they had a little racket going. And so selling the animals to, for people to sacrifice is not necessarily a bad thing unless you are cheating people. And that's what the religious leaders were allowing to take place. People were, were, were being cheated. And then there were money changes there. Why were there money changes? Where, when you gave your temple tax, you, you as a man had to give that temple tax. That was required of you and you could not give Roman money. That, was, that had Caesar's image on it, so that wasn't allowed. So you had to exchange your money. And when you exchanged your money, they were charging large, large amounts of money for that service. And so they were, again, they were cheating, allowing the cheating of the people to take place. And so this was not okay with Jesus. Here's what he does in the next few verses. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So here's what's taking place. Jesus makes a cord of whips. He drives out all these uh, these animals, all these people. And he says that you're making my father's house a house of trade. Now in other um, gospels, in Matthew and Luke, we have the same story. It's a similar story of Jesus clearing the temple is what it's commonly called. Um, However, it's a little bit different. Um, And so people kind of debate this because in John's gospel, the story is in the beginning of Jesus's life. And in um, the other gospels, the story is later on in Jesus's life. And so people see this contradiction and they think, see, well, Bible again is, is, is you know, filled with contradictions. And so that's how they kind of reason that. But you really can explain it um, with, with one of two ways, basically. A lot of people believe that Jesus actually cleared the temple twice. So this was one story that John tells. And then later on, he does it again. Or a lot of people believe that John writes his gospel not in chronological order. Remember week one, I I mentioned that. He's not writing in chronological order every single day of the week and in in the life of Jesus. He's writing one complete story and and it might have happened at different times, but but it's just the way he chose to write. Whereas somebody like Luke did write in chronological order. And so there are ways to explain that. So don't let that freak you out or trip you up if, you, if you're going home and you do research on this. The point of the story here is what Jesus does and what in fact is making him angry. Um, one of the things that I tweeted this week uh, was a question. I, I like to just kind of share a little bit of what I'm gonna talk about on Sunday during the week. And, and I, I posted this a few days ago. Did Jesus have anger issues? The whole whip thing and turning over tables. I mean, that's a good question here because Jesus is getting upset. He's making a whip and evidently he's beating people and beating, you know, get upset. He's kind of in a, in a rage. He's in a fit. He's in this, he's in this panic. Is, is Jesus, you know, a rageaholic? Is he like us on Alcoa Highway when somebody cuts us off? Hey, get out of the way, man, you know? You never do that, I know, it's just me. <laughs> Kids are looking at their dad like, hey, he's talking about, you know. <laughs> Seriously, though, I mean, it's a good question because is Jesus kind of flipping his lid here? I mean, how, why is he so angry and why is he, you know, going through this and, 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 and why is this even an issue? You can take that down. Because for us, we want to understand, like, like what is the lesson? What, what is the heart of Jesus? And the first thing I would say, the first lesson is this. Sometimes 
it's all right to be angry. There, there are times when it's right to be angry. When Jesus enters the temple and he sees what's happening, he has every right to be angry. You and I should be angry at sin. When we see Jesus upset here, we see him you know, move into action. He responds to this sin and, and, and he's upset. Now, now he has what we would call a righteous anger. He is righteously upset at the, at the, at the sin that is taking place. And then we're gonna see passages in like Ephesians 5.1 that says, be imitators of God. All right, so if we're gonna imitate God, that means we can get angry. Now, wait a minute. Why? I, I, anger feels wrong, right? I mean, anger f- messes with us. But, but here's the thing. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 to be angry and not to sin. So anger is an emotion. Anger is something that wells up inside of us. It's, a, it's this emotion that, that just in and of itself is not necessarily sin unless it leads us to sinful behavior, a sinful action. So you can be upset if your kids do something. You can be angry if your wife does something, if, 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 if they're sinning against you. And yet it's not an issue unless you allow that anger to turn into harsh words or you know, forceful action, which gets your heart and yourself in trouble. So God is getting angry and it's a righteous anger because there is sin here. Now sin should upset us. We should be angry at sin. It should, it should cause us to burn within us. It should, it should give us some passion in our life when we see sin in our life. When we see sin around us, we should get upset. It should make us angry. But what we do with that anger is the real question. I'll give you an example. I went to, to the Dominican Republic a couple of years ago um, when we were thinking about partnering with the missionary down there. We, we went and we checked it out and, and um, he, he led us to a place, a city called Sasua. And um, he kind of prefaced the place and um, we, we weren't really prepared for what we were about to see. Um, basically, we went to this, the, the, the strip, I guess the center of the town there. And, and for about a half a mile, it was nothing but bar after bar after bar after bar and lined each side of the road with women, women from one side all the way down the other side, just sitting there waiting. And what they were doing is they were, they were selling their bodies and they were waiting for men to come and get them. And some of these women weren't women at all. They were actually 12, 13, 14-year-olds. When I see that scene, I was immediately disturbed. The missionary then told us that some of these women we believe are actually slaves. They can't do anything about it. And so we walked that road, and I have never felt so disturbed and upset and, and literally physically sick to my stomach Never in my life have I ever experienced that. Seeing these men taking these women and, and leaving and, and no police, no, no, no issue at all. And, and, and seeing what was taking place right before my eyes, I wanted to rescue every single girl and drop a bomb on every dude in the area. I mean, that was my, that was my angry response. Kill them all, save all the girls. <clears throat> Honestly, sometimes I still feel like that. That would solve it. But then again, I realize that sometimes my anger leads me to do sinful things, to think sinful things, and that's, that's one of them. But what I can do is I can do something, and I think that's why the emotion of anger is given to us by God. Because something like that should make us 
angry. It should disturb you to the very core of your being. They estimate that there are between 20 and 30 million women in slavery today being trafficked uh, all over the world. So angry, yes. How do we respond? Well, we have to respond thoughtfully. And as believers, I think we, we partner with organizations that, that are doing something about it, who are reversing this trend. And so our energy and our attention goes from being angry to being focused on a positive work and ministry that can light up the darkness. And so no matter what area of, of, of the world, no matter what sin it is, no matter what problem you're trying to solve, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I think your passion intersects with anger at the same time it intersects with God's vision for your life. And that way you're propelled to do something about it. I can hardly watch the news anymore. It's like one negative thing after the next negative thing and it's always the leader's fault and it's always the coach's fault and everybody hates everybody and it's negative, critical, critical. Where are the people that wanna stand up and make a difference and do something about it? You don't find as many and, and, and I think that's a tragedy because as the church of Jesus Christ, you and I should be the leaders in this city. You and I should be the leaders in this state making change, creating change, allowing God to make us angry about problems and then getting up and doing something about it. The problem is, one of many, is that what you and I are passionate about oftentimes is so far away from what God teaches us in this book that we end up spinning our wheels, chasing the wind, chasing after everything in this life, and we end up not making a difference. We end up not doing anything for the gospel. And my challenge for you today is to see the passion that Jesus has for the church, to rid the church of sin and to allow worship to take place rightfully. Here are three things that Jesus was upset at. If you guys will put that up. The first thing that Jesus is angry about is hypocrisy. He's seeing these religious leaders say, hey, come and worship. Everybody pay your tax. Everybody get an animal. Come on, let's worship God. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. All the while they're cheating people, stealing from them, getting fat, rich, you know, getting, having everything that they need, you know, taking advantage of the people. Jesus is upset when he sees hypocrisy. You know, we look at the church and we think, man, I wonder if there's any hypocrisy in this room. People that are here claiming to be followers of Jesus, but last night and earlier this week, they didn't look like Jesus. They weren't acting like Jesus. Hypocrisy makes Jesus angry. Telling our kids to do one thing and yet we're not like modeling it to them. It's hypocrisy. Second thing that I think Jesus is upset about here is that he is upset about greed. He's upset about greed. So what they're doing is they're not... Their focus is not love of God. Their focus is not worship of God. Their focus is we need to make money here. So let's get some money. That's a good idea. We can sell that animal for that amount. We can, we can exchange the money and charge this. And so love of God was not the issue. Love of money was the issue. And so their, their greed over, uh, overcame any love for God. See, greed has a way of changing us. Uh, some of us think that we just need a little bit more money, don't we? 
if I had just a little bit more money, things would be great. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. <laughs> the Bible is so good, man. <laughs> he who loves money will never be satisfied with money. So having a little bit more, it's not gonna satisfy you. If I could just get that raise and if we could just get this done, if I could have a little bit more, then I would be, the Bible says, you're not gonna be satisfied with money if you love it. It's never gonna satisfy you. Greed makes Jesus angry. And then finally, the final thing that Jesus is upset about here, what he's angry about is fabricated worship. Because this is not authentic worship. It's the opposite of authentic worship. It's false. It's fabricated. It's not true worship here. They are going to the temple to worship God, to sacrifice animals. But the religious leaders have completely changed the landscape. And it's all made up. It's fabricated. Their heart is not in the right place. And so we look at our church, we look at, we look at our life and, and we wanna know, I mean, is this sin in our life that, that's, that are we just making up worship? Are we here completely on our, uh, you know, false motives, bad motives, selfish motives? Jesus says this in Matthew 15, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There's a whole group of people that would give Jesus the lip service, but they would not be passionate about following him. Because here's the second lesson we learn here. When we're passionate about something, it leads to action. When you're passionate about something, it leads to action. Your passion leads to action every time, every time. So, so what are your actions today? So if, if we followed you around and kind of saw your life, what you did and how you spent your time and money and blah, blah, blah. So, so, like, so what is your action? I, I can look at that. And I can, I can see the, the breadcrumb trail, you know, that's going to lead to what you're passionate about. And so, so if it's your kids, and, and, and man, I hope you're passionate about your kids, but I hope you're not worshiping your kids. Because we see a trend today which says our kids, we want to give them everything and, 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 and they're never going to be without. And, and the teacher is always wrong and, and my kids always right. And, and we're going to give, give, give and end up spoiling our kids. And what ends up happening is, you know, if we are worshiping them, their schedule ends up dictating our schedule as mom and dad. What is going on? It's like we can't go to church because our kids have to, what? We can't do small group because our kids are, what? It's like when did kids and their priorities and their schedule dictate a grown man's schedule? No, we've got to own our own schedules and, and, and we've got to get things in order as a family because Worship is at stake here. At the end of the day, worship is our response to God. If you, it's our response to God. So when we sing a song, we are singing and, and it's our response to what we know about Jesus. So when we're singing, you are Lord Jesus, we raise our hands to you, Jesus. I'm gonna raise my hands. I'm gonna respond to what I'm saying because that's my response to him. My passion for worship will lead to actions. It will move me. My passion for Jesus will move me into ministry. It will move and inspire me to make a difference in the lives of other people. I can give God lip service all day long, but if it has not moved my body into motion, my mind into thinking and doing something for the kingdom of God, I am a hypocrite. And so I wanna, I wanna see the zeal that Jesus had. You see, when the disciples see Jesus doing this, what they see is a man who is passionate. They use the word zeal. 
And their response to Jesus doing this is not, man, Jesus is crazy. Their response is, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We remember now he's the Messiah. This is Psalm 69, verse 9, which is a a prophecy of the Messiah. And so when they see Jesus doing this, their response to Jesus is he's the Messiah. Now, again, when we think about what Jesus is doing here, it's like, but sometimes we think that he's a crazy dude right now and he's, he's you know, what, what's happening because we see movies about Jesus and he's always this timid, shy looking guy, you know, with blonde hair and long, you know, brown or long blonde hair, whatever. And it's like, he's always on the verge of tears. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I hate seeing that. Like every, everything about Jesus in the movies, sometimes in pictures is this frail little man that is always afraid and timid and on the verge of tears. Oh, the Pharisees, you know, it's like, no. Jesus was a carpenter. So, I mean, he worked with his hands. He built stuff. That's manly, to to build stuff, right? And so that that meant that his hands were probably pretty rugged. They didn't have SPF back then. So his son, I mean, his his, his skin was beaten down by the sun a little bit, all right? Um, They didn't have ax back in the day. So he probably had a little stench going on, you know? A manly kind of stench. Like he's been working working with with lumber, you know? And and so he's probably, maybe, you know, when you miss the the nail and you you smash your finger and you get black, you know, bruised fingernails. He's, He's got some, you know, bruised hands here. I mean, this is a rugged, tough dude. Now, what does he spend the majority of his life doing? Or you brood of vipers? Who Who's in charge back in the day? Who's in charge at this time? The religious leaders. Who had the authority to throw you in jail? Religious leaders. Who had the authority to kill you? Religious leaders. Who had the authority to shut you up and to do anything they wanted to um, when, when they wanted to? The religious leaders. And what does Jesus do? Confronts, constantly confronts them. Calls them a brood of vipers, challenges them in their face. I mean, this is a guy that I want to hang with. Not wimpy, scared little Jesus. I want to, I want to follow the Jesus of the Bible, you know? This is, what, this is what excites me. Like Jesus is confronting these folks. I mean, man, he's taking a whip, you know? And it's not like a, a crazy kind of grab anything whip like your mama used to do when she was mad at you. You remember when mom was mad and she didn't care what was around. It could have been a stick, a switch, a a spoon. I remember getting a brush one day. It's a sharp brush too, man. It's like, get that. You know, that's that's kind of a rage response. You know, we've all kind of been there. This isn't what Jesus is doing. Jesus sees what's going on. and, And the Bible says that he goes and he makes a whip. So that means he sees what's happening. He's like, oh, I'm gonna be right back. And he goes and he finds his little cords and he starts making his cords. And I don't know how long it takes him, but, but it's not like a raging fit kind of make a whip, but a couple feet, I don't know, two, three feet, he probably makes this whip. And, and boom, after that, he comes back. So this is very calculated. He's very much in control. He's allowed his, his, his anger to lead him to action. So he takes the whip. And I don't know, does anybody raise oxen? Anybody have any ox at the house? Probably not. Pretty big animals, big dudes. They're not just gonna leave, you know, they're not gonna leave... Come here, buddy. Come here. You know, that's not going to work. You got to take a whip to those dudes. And so Jesus takes a whip and he cracks the whip on these animals and he drives them out. He drives the sheep out. <clears throat> Again, he's not crazy. He goes to the, the guy who's selling the, the, the pigeons and, and he says, look, take these things out of here. So it's not like he takes the cage and he like breaks the cage and kills birds or, or like sets them free. Fly, fly. Because this guy, this is how he makes his living. Right? And so he's not like killing the birds and, 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 and he's not like just releasing them. He's telling that guy specifically, because birds are a little bit different than the ox, get those things out of here. 
turns over the tables and he drives everybody out with this whip. Now, I would like to imagine Jesus hitting a few of them, you know, just because I think that's cool, you know, just kind of not, not maiming anybody, but definitely letting them know that he's there, right, to get out. His zeal, his passion for God's house, his passion for holiness. We just got to look at it and say, is our passion for God's holiness in our life there? Is our passion for God's church as, as, as equally as passionate as Jesus's? Because that's our standard. We want to imitate him. What's the response of the religious leaders? Here we go. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, this is their response to the whole situation. What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what's the, what's the response of the religious leaders? Prove it. What gives you the right to tell us what's wrong? What gives you the right to tell us what's right and what's wrong? <laughs> Sounds just like our culture, doesn't it? God can't tell us what's sin. I, I, I know what's right for me and you decide what's right for you. Don't tell us, God, how to live our life. We know what's right and, and we know what's fair, not God. We know that this book is just an ancient, irrelevant book. It doesn't really have the answers for anything. And so obviously what that book says isn't what sin is and what sin is, is, is not. We can determine that. They question Jesus' authority to tell them what sin is. Man, aren't we really good at that? When we are involved in sin, when we have something that we're really enjoying and we think is great for us, but we know it's wrong, we can rationalize our way out of that sin, can't we? We can rationalize it and, 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 and find loops and holes and, and, and articulate it in such a way that it doesn't sound so bad because, you know what, I know he says it's wrong, but in my situation, in my, you know, what's happening in my life, I think it's okay. And I believe the passion of Jesus would say differently. If he says it's wrong, it's wrong. We need to call sin what it is. And I, I think it's time for the church to stand up for that and to be vocal about that it's among believers especially and, and, and to believe in what God's word actually says and what it actually teaches. Passion drives action. Jesus, they want a response. They, they want a magic trick. Prove it, Jesus. And instead of doing a magic trick, Jesus, he gives them an, an, an example. He says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Now they thought immediately of the, the physical structure, the building as being what he was talking about. But, but what's interesting here in this last verse that I read, verse 22, it says that the disciples later figure out what Jesus is talking about. So in the moment, as Jesus is saying this, the, the disciples, they don't get it. They're like, I mean, I can imagine their, their, their eyes are wide. They're like, what is going on? You know, and they hear Jesus say this and they don't get it. But later on, they get it. The Holy Spirit reveals to them, hey, this is what Jesus was talking about. That day he cleared out the temple. And, and that gives me hope because sometimes I don't get it the first try. God tries to teach me something. I'm a knucklehead. I'm stubborn. I do it my way. And I go down that, that same path of, of destruction in my life. And then eventually, you know, maybe I, I finally get it. And so the disciples are kind of learning a little bit later on, and that gives me hope. And so Jesus is referring to his body. He's saying, this is the temple of God. The God's presence is here with, I, I am God. The presence of God is, is dwelling with you right now. And, and, and he says, 
kill me, and in three days, I'll raise. So he gives them an illustration, example. So when we think about this story, where is the temple of God today? At that time, the temple, the presence of God was, was, was dwelling in that, that structure. This is a great structure, great, great building for us. Um, Holy Spirit of God is here today in this place, not because of the four walls that we are surrounded by today. But Holy Spirit is here today because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit lives within us, those who believe in Christ. So that's why the Bible can say this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. It says, or do you not know <clears throat> that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So we know that our bodies, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us. So my body, your body is the temple of God today. So that means when we gather together, yeah, the Holy Spirit is here. God is with us. No matter where I go, God is with me. This facility is great. I think it should look better than our homes. I think we should take pride in this. If we see trash, we pick it up. Uh, this should look wonderful. We should keep it up to date. It should be an amazing structure and facility because it's where we gather for worship. But it is not a holy place. The holy place is this structure, my body, your body. Not because of what I've done, not because of what you've done, but because of what, have, what, what he has done on the cross and how he gifted us with the spirit living within us. So I wanna, I wanna close with this today. Because we think about the sin in our life. I wonder just how many of us, as, we, as, we, as, as God brings our attention to the sin in our life, and this is something I've been praying about all week, like, like God reveal the sin in our life, reveal sin in our church. As we hear this, God, just speak to our people today. So we think about this. If Jesus were to take a whip, <laughs> come over to your house today, what's he gonna be driving out? What sin is in your life that you need to eradicate, that you need to repent of, that you need to turn from? And know what it is and what you're dealing with. I don't know what you're struggling with, but maybe there is, there's one or two things. Maybe there's something that you keep going back to. You keep picking it up. You keep saying, you know, I need to quit this, but then you go back to it and you keep dragging it out. Now, one of the things we've got to realize today is, is sometimes we don't experience the consequences of our sin uh, as quickly as, as, as sometimes we do in other situations. When I was a kid growing up, sometimes I would, I would mistake God's patience for his acceptance. Let me explain that. I, I, would, I would live in sin. I would not experience consequences because they don't always happen immediately. And I would mistake that was God's patience in my life. And I would, I would mistake that for the fact that he was accepting my lifestyle. Like it's okay for me to do this. It's okay for me to continue this because nobody's found out. It doesn't appear like I'm hurting anybody. But what I found out and what many of you have found out in your life is that there are always consequences to our sin. And it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but eventually we reap what we sow. And so as God reveals sin in our life, the best thing you could ever do is immediately deal with it, immediately turn from it, and give it to him and lay it, lay it down before him and, and, and lay the guilt down, lay the shame down, 
all the things that, that come with that particular sin, you lay it down before him and you take your thoughts captive from that moment off, not allowing your mind to go back to the negativity and back to those thoughts of guilt and shame, but you allow your mind to focus on the positive of what God is doing in your heart and what he's telling us to do in his word. And so we're gonna, we're gonna kill those thoughts and we're gonna accept who we are in Christ today and we're gonna kill sin in our life, knowing that as we kill sin, our relationship with God increases and our relationships with others around us are blessed, become healthier. Everything in our life becomes healthier when we repent of sin and draw closer to Christ. Let me close with this. Would you guys just bow your heads? And I just wanna encourage you to ask God this morning, what, what sin does he need to bring to your mind today that you need to turn from, repent of, hand over to him? Lay that down before him today. As Jesus would drive out the greed and hypocrisy in the temple over 2,000 years ago, I pray that he would drive out the sin in our life today. No matter what it is, no matter what you're struggling with, that you would receive freedom and victory today by laying it down at the foot of the cross, receiving his forgiveness, receiving his joy, his direction, and may he change our passions today. And may our passion for him increase, that our response in worship would increase and that it would move us into a place of honoring God with all of our hearts. It wouldn't just be about lip service, but it would be about movement in our life. Father, as we confess sin to you today, we pray that we would receive your forgiveness, that we would understand it. God, that you would give us the strength to overcome it. Give us victory in this place today. Break every chain, God, that would hold us back. That we would receive your mercy and your grace in an entirely new way. That what has held us back will no longer hold us back. That relationships that have been restored or relationships that have been broken would be restored. That you would receive glory and honor in and through our life and that our passion for you would grow for your gospel, for your church, and for your work. Because everything, Lord, at the end of the day is all about you. So we pray for that strength and forgiveness today as we leave and all God's people said, amen. You guys have a wonderful, fantastic week. We will see you next Sunday. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.